are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Scent. And we're picking up this evening with step number 14 on gluttony. And we are on page 136, if you're following uh, along in our translation, which is from the Holy Transfiguration. And uh, again, 136, paragraph 17, towards the bottom of the page. Climacus writes, Master your stomach before it masters you, and then you are sure to control yourself with the aid of shame. Those who have fallen into the horrible gulf know what I have said, but men who are eunuchs have not experienced this. So it seems like a rather obtuse uh, saying in some ways, but he's making reference here certainly between the, the different bodily appetites. Uh, that gluttony is often tied to to lust or to sensuality. And so one who is unable to order this appetite uh, often then falls into sins that are tied to our sexual appetites. And so John says here, you know, try to seek to control it with the aid of shame. That is with uh, the help of not wanting uh, to fall into other sins that would be tied to that of gluttony, which one might, one might find more shameful to oneself. And so it's not certainly the highest motivation, but John is saying that, you know, to be attentive to it, where gluttony can lead and where this, kind, this disorder in terms of our bodily desires can lead, and it can aid us in that struggle. Ultimately, certainly, uh, we want love to be the thing that leads us away from our passions and shapes our repentance so that we uh, develop not only a hatred for sin, uh, but uh, a freedom from it uh, altogether in the sense that we are driven wholly by love and our desire for God and desire to do his will. So it loses its uh, uh, attraction for us. We lose our attachment not only to the sin, uh, but to the, the things that lead to it, the causes of it. Uh, but here, uh, in the beginning, often John is clear that the, the struggle is a difficult one and can go on for many years. And certainly uh, with those that are tied to our bodily appetites, uh, we have to be vigilant even when we uh, do seem to overcome them. We have to be vigilant till the moment that we're in the grave, since simply because they're such a part of who we are. Number 18, let us curb the stomach by thought of future fire, 
for some who were slaves of their stomachs have cut their members right off and died a double death. If we go into the matter, we shall find that it is the stomach alone that is the cause of all human shipwreck. So interesting, you know, this fundamental appetite that we have uh, as human beings, uh, given the nature of the fall and our weakness, he says, this is the, the door, if you will, uh, and the cause of all human shipwreck. Uh, that uh, we're unable to control our most basic desires and appetites. And certainly this is the root of the fall. You know, those who would seize for themselves the, the knowledge of good and evil by eating of the fruit of the tree uh, receive exactly what they desire. No longer simply the knowledge of the good and the experience of the good, but the knowledge of good and evil and knowledge in terms of experience. And so this inability to curb one's appetite uh, then becomes the, the, the cause or the, the root of all human shipwreck. And so we have to be attentive to it right from the beginning of the spiritual life and all the way throughout the course of our life as a whole. And not to be tempted uh, in our struggle with the other appetites, in particular our sexual appetites, uh, to do ourselves bodily harm. And he's making a veiled reference here to those throughout uh, history that have mutilated themselves uh, with the desire of not having to struggle uh, with the sexual passions. And so in the self-mutilation, uh, leading themselves into greater sin, certainly not following the, the will of God in that regard, uh, but in, in, in the sense of uh, cherishing their own humanity and treating it with dignity, but uh, willing to uh, mutilate themselves with the hope, I think, of being freed uh, from the struggles with this particular passion. And the church has always been very clear about this, and uh, that despite the fact that our appetites uh, have to be addressed and have to be ordered, that, uh, that we are, are not to... Uh, do ourselves damage, whether it's through fasting or through something such as this. And uh, so great discipline is needed, of course, but not to the point of losing reason and right judgment. Any comments so far? All right. Uh, Bridget McGinley, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things, Philippians, right? So whose God is their belly, right? So those who are driven and continue to be driven by the fundamental appetites are going to be led to all the others. And, uh, and so there's a reason that, as we've talked before, about why the capital sins or the eight vices are ordered in the way that they are, that it's typically those that are with tied to the body, body or bodily appetites or desires for material things, things of this world that have to be overcome first. And then the more subtle ones uh, are able to be struggled with. Um, so gluttony, lust, avarice uh, typically are the ones that one has to begin to struggle with. And none of them are easy to deal with. And but we can't leapfrog, as it were, over this or be inattentive to it. And uh, you know, I think 
you know, coming out of the great fast, we, we should have a kind of clarity about this. Now, I think in our own minds and our hearts of the, how the humbling of the mind and the body deepens prayer and uh, is something that should be a regular part of our spiritual life. And so while we might uh, feast during the feast, uh, nonetheless, we would see fasting as a constant part of our spiritual life because our hunger for food and our use of food is a constant for us as well. And so we'll always be tempted to excess in that regard. Number 19, the mind of a faster prays soberly, but the mind of an intemperate person is filled with impure idols. So this is basically what I, I was talking about here, that the faster, humbled in mind and body, is able to, to pray soberly with a kind of attentiveness to God, lack of distraction. Uh, the thoughts begin to, uh, to slow down, the heart stills, and one can be attentive to God in a deeper fashion. Whereas if one is intemperate, uh, it becomes very difficult to pray that if we are weighed down with uh, eating a large amount or rich foods or, or indulging ourselves uh, in the kinds of foods that we, we eat, then it can be something that makes it very difficult to pray. But not only that, but leads us, as John tells us here, we're filled with all kinds of impure idols. The moment that we idolize the self in, in regards to satisfying uh, a particular appetite, the moment that we make our stomach our God, then it's a short step to making many things uh, within this world, uh, not only the satisfying of our appetites for, uh, on a bodily level for food and for sensuality, satisfying our sexual appetites, but also for the things of this world as a whole, that our capacity for discernment is diminished that uh, closely tied to uh, the ordering of these appetites is discernment and purity of heart. And uh, lacking that, then it becomes much more difficult to see the truth about ourselves and our own sin and the things that we need to struggle with, as well as the truths that have been revealed to us in Christ. So, you know, we've moved into an age of minimalism in our attentiveness uh, to this particular passion, but also in the remedies the fathers put before us. And, uh, but this, so this is where we must begin. And, uh, and this is where it's consistent within the writings of the fathers, that ordering this appetite uh, is something that is essential. And if we neglect it, then it's going to plague us throughout the whole of our life. Number 20, satiety of the stomach dries the tear springs, but the stomach when dried produces these waters. So the, the humbling uh, of the body and the mind in this, in this fashion uh, allows again for that kind of purity of heart to begin to emerge for us to be able to see uh, what is within the heart the movement of our thoughts, the things that we are attracted to with a greater clarity. And from this is produced true repentance and the fruit of that, which would be tears, the cleansing tears that John has spoken of 
and that we've talked about on, on many occasions, that uh, uh, this compunction that turns us away from this sin and its emptiness and turns us back toward God, uh, the kind of second baptism, if you remember, John uh, spoke about here. And perhaps, you know, this is why we don't hear tears spoken of very much, I think, uh, in the Western world either. Uh, uh, and in, in, in the sense of their being tied to the spiritual life. And uh, emotionally, I think uh, uh, people can move towards that in the sense of catharsis in the spiritual life or uh, sort of fostering a kind of spiritual experience for themselves but not necessarily in the way that the fathers or John Climacus would describe the gift of tears that come to us from God and that help to purify the heart. Any comments, questions? Okay. I have a question, Emma. All right, go ahead. You either have to type it up or you have to unmute yourself. Okay, there it is. I was wondering, can fasting help with other attachments to the world like shopping? Uh, yes, I mean, it's a good question. And uh, certainly uh, things like shopping would be tied to another appetite, our appetite for material goods and tied to avarice in particular. So again, you know, controlling our appetite in this regard uh, is a building block, I think, of the spiritual life as a whole, that we seek to uh, not only to gain control of the appetite and the, the desire, but to direct it towards its rightful end, which is God or toward the good that he has uh, given us particular appetites for in our life. Uh, certainly eating in order to sustain ourselves, uh, but to do so in an or ordered fashion. Uh, but uh, one of the ways that we are able to overcome gluttony then is th through two things, through fasting, uh, through controlling both the, the quantity, but also the, the quality of the food that we eat, abstaining from certain foods, avoiding the rich foods, uh, but also uh, I think it frees us up from uh, over-focus on the things of, of this world, that uh, you know, our shopping and the abundance uh, of things that we shop for in regards to food, again, is something that also easily translates into our desire for other things as well. We get into a kind of habit of mind, uh, a habit of excess, and uh, walk into any supermarket in our country, there's such an abundance there that it's somewhat overwhelming. And so we have this tendency to always be looking for uh, the best and the finest in that regard. And so it's excess, uh, but also extravagance. And so uh, getting back to your question here, uh, letting go of our attachment on this level, on this fundamental level can help us then with our attachment to other things of this world that appeal to us 
on an emotional and physical level too, and maybe on a more emotional level for uh, certain material things that when we experience kind of emptiness within us, if you remember, we've talked many times about the nature of the word desire itself being rooted in the meaning a uh, sense of lack or incompleteness and that our fundamental desire is rooted in uh, our, our lack of that intimacy with God that is caused by our sin, that we've been created in his image and likeness and created for himself to experience the fullness of his life and love. And so whenever we turn away from him and we know the poverty of our sin, we begin to experience that lack on multiple levels, anxiety, depression, but life as a whole can seem empty to us. And so we can be driven to fill that void with multiple things, with food is a big one, uh, but also material goods uh, uh, or entertainment, distractions of one sort or another uh, that offer a temporary sense of fullness or relief uh, from that feeling of, of emptiness, rather than uh, turning to, to, to prayer and allowing ourselves to be nourished upon the love of God. And so all of these things are linked together like cars in a train, the fathers tell us. And so to gain uh, headway in our struggle with one is to gain strength in dealing uh, with the others. But likewise, if we give ourselves over to one, we become more vulnerable to the others as well. And so if we give ourselves over to gluttony, then we're certainly going to be more vulnerable to the the other passions too. Brett, yeah, you had a question or comment? Yeah, yeah I think it's going to be easier if I just speak oh, it. Sure. Okay. So I'm the liturgical I'm the liturgical catechist in our parish, mm -hmm. which is how we do RCIA in a sense. Um, and we have 180 fast days in the Melkite tradition. I'm sure it's similar, if not the same, in Ruthenian and the others. Um, and so I teach this and I, I attempt to practice it. I have like, I, as I became the catechist, I decided I'm going to actually do this because <laughs> otherwise I'm not practicing what I preach. Right? Um, right. And there's certain challenges. I would say like, I'm not a very good cook, so I eat out a lot. And so it's really hard because we basically have, and I'm, I guess it's the same for you, but we have a no meat, uh, no dairy, no olive oil, no wine mm -hmm. restriction. It's kind of like a vegan diet actually, right? Mm -hmm. So like bringing people into the church um, without teaching them how to cook differently, um, if they're gonna follow these, these fasting restrictions mm -hmm. as I think we should, um, kind of like puts them in a situation where they can't, they can't um, succeed. Right. And the, my second question would be also like, I have a lot of Roman Catholic friends and uh, we uh, hang out a lot. Um, and during fast days, it's like, I don't know if I should just do as, uh, do as the Romans do when I'm in Rome. <laughs> and like do do a fish fry instead during Lent, for example. Uh -huh. um, is that is that allowed? Um, I don't know. Um, but it's it's almost like I was I struggle with okay, this is being rude because I'm saying I'm not gonna be eating with you mm -hmm. because the restaurant we're at or pub we're at doesn't have 
anything vegan on the menu, right? Um, so, or am I just being um, a wimp and and looking for an excuse to break break the fast, you know, <laughs> to protect myself from breaking the fast? So these are like real challenges, like cooking, like how do we learn to cook this way? And how do we, how are we with our non-Byzantine uh, Catholic friends? Mm-hmm. Um, these are challenges that I'm facing in fasting, if that makes any sense. Yes, it makes a lot of sense. And uh, you're not alone, certainly in that struggle. And uh, not too long ago, we had a group on fasting, uh, which you might want to listen to. It's available on the Philokalia website. Uh, but there's an author named Adelbert de Vogue, who wrote a book called To Love Fasting. And I think that's where we have to begin with those coming into the church. Uh, we see throughout our world so many embracing the practice of fasting uh, for health reasons or to lose weight. And so somebody who's out with friends and they're doing intermittent fasting, they're not going to have any hesitancy in telling their friends, oh, I'm doing this. So, And everybody would probably applaud them and say, oh, I, I should do that too. I wish I could do that. Or what's that been like? But when it comes to bearing witness to our spiritual practices, not that we would uh, be announcing these to the world constantly, we often show a kind of hesitancy there. And part of it is, I think, our, our, our own lack of faith in the fruitfulness of those, of those practices and the value and the meaning of them. And that only arises, as you said, out of practice, where we begin to have a love for the discipline of fasting because of the fruit that it produces, that it creates within us a desire for the heavenly bridegroom. Uh, who is the bread of life, the one alone who can nourish us fully. And so the more that one enters into this practice of fasting throughout the course of the year, and not only abstaining, but fasting truly uh, from all food for certain periods as well, that uh, one begins to experience that. And so speaking out of that experience is always far more powerful than simply speaking about the practice of fasting. So you're right on from the beginning that it's important to be living it uh, and uh, so that we can speak to the truth of it from what we've experienced over time and that intimacy that develops with God and also uh, how it allows us to enter into the liturgy more fully too, that fasting and the Holy Eucharist together uh, both, I think, uh, alter and are a cure to our tendency toward gluttony, that I think there's a reason Christ gave himself to to us in the way that he did, uh, becoming our very food and drink in order to alter this fundamental appetite that we have as human beings, this fundamental desire and have it be directed toward him. When the bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast, that forever now our fasting comes tied to intimacy with the Lord and uh, the desire for his love. And we have to begin communicating that uh, within the homes right from the beginning. So it becomes a practice that's uh, embraced by families as a whole from the earliest years uh, of children's life, you know, once they're able to do so or in some measure. And we have to gradually enter into it more deeply over time. Uh, for those, I imagine, in, you know, who are coming into the church, uh, they would have to uh, gradually take up the discipline 
of it and then over the course of years enter into it more and more deeply uh giving up oil for example the use of oil can be a very difficult thing and uh some dairy too might be very difficult for individuals as they they begin and so to have them deepen that asceticism over the course of time and part of it is learning to uh eat simply and to be able to enjoy that and there are i think plenty of websites and books about uh recipes for in particular for eastern christian fasting and so they are out there and i i found that it was actually pretty simple rice and beans and broccoli go a long way uh in terms of at least keeping you healthy uh and uh like almond milk and things such as that and uh soups you know with uh, lentils all that kind of stuff you can actually eat a very healthy diet that's with things that are fairly easy to prepare and so but i think parishes that would be a superb group uh to have regularly within a parish where those who are practiced in this would offer recipes or show people how to cook for the fast itself and uh actually i had the help of uh ren is she still here in the group i i, I don't see her here or yeah she's still in the group show me uh she's are you a vegan or how uh i'm a vegetarian vegetarian right uh, i'm like by default vegan four days out of the week basically right so she, she sh showed me a lot uh and helped me even with like the grocery shopping to know what i needed to have in order to be able to prepare things quickly for myself that would be healthy uh knowing the nature of, of my schedule and so so it can be done and done done fruitfully and so i don't want to spend too much time on it but i i think you're right we can't just throw people in the deep end uh we have to tie it to the spiritual life as a whole and to the wisdom of the fathers as a whole why is it that we embrace fasting what is the nature of our fasting christian uh, that is distinctly distinctive and uniquely christian and uh and how is it that we help people begin to embrace that over the course of time uh because i think if we simply present that present it to the presented to them then they can inevitably fail if they try to embrace it in its fullness without the preparation spiritually or as you said in terms of even uh what to eat or how to prepare meals during that time well Rent. oh here's something yeah here's something also that i kind of brought up in the in the catechism class um mm -hmm. it's yeah the asceticism is important and that's that's the central and starting place for understanding the fasting. Mm -hmm. But I think it also, in a sense, just like during the great, the great Lent or the great fast, we, um, you know, we take our spirituality seriously, right? Um, mm -hmm. Or hopefully. Mm -hmm. um, but during the, the minor fast days or the, the great feast or the, um, the commemoration days, mm -hmm. um, the fast days are actually there to help us take our spirituality seriously as well. 
and also whatever we're commemorating or what whatever the feast is is whatever the feastal day is mm-hmm. it helped to drive the spirituality and the theology of that home like we're taking it very seriously and we're altering our life mm-hmm. to uh to focus on what this is drive, driving us to right mm-hmm. um so aestheticism is great but it's also like reorientating ourselves towards the theology of the feast day or the fast day Absolutely. I, and again, I think you put your finger on a, a good point here that what we are drawing people into is a way of life to see their 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 lives through the lens of their relationship with Christ and the teachings of the church, the gospel, the writings of the fathers about how one exercises that that faith and does so fully. And um, and so to gradually draw draw people into it more and more deeply. Uh, I don't hear it spoken of very often. I hear it spoken about more more often in secular circles. Uh, but I, I think the beauty of the Eastern Rite fast is that they are regular, and that the abstinence takes place, as you said, you know, between 150, sometimes even you know, 20 more days than that uh, throughout the course of the year, and uh, and sometimes it sort of heightens our attention, especially for the feast day. That was sort of one of the unusual things for me too, uh, in terms of when fe- uh, fasting takes place, sometimes on a feast day itself, uh, in order to sort of heighten our celebration or in our capacity to enter into it fully. Ren, you've had your hand up for a while. Yeah, I'm just going to say this real quick, and then I don't want to prolong this because it's a little mm-hmm. off point, but just to get right to that, um, that Brett's other point about, you know, charity and Roman Catholics and what do you do like going out? I mean, I mean, and I'm still canonically Roman, so, <laughs> but um but I think with that, like I had that happen all the time. All my godchildren are in Roman Catholic families. And every time I see them, it's for dinner, you know? And uh, I mean, for 10 years, all my friends have known I can't eat meat, so they don't cook meat. And if I'm going out to eat, not a single one of my friends is going to pick something like a steakhouse if they're going out to dinner with me because (laughs) they know me and they're my friends, right? They're not going to pick something they know I can't possibly eat at. So I think that's just like part of the friendship. But I just don't think there needs to be a whole lot of anxiety about it. In fact, I was going to my goddaughter's night uh, house the next day at after our fasting talk that father gave and uh and I was just going to kind of go along with whatever they had and I'm like sure I'm sure it'll have cheese in it but I'll just deal with it and then after the fasting talk I was like no that's ridiculous I'm just going to tell my really good friends that I can't eat any animal products right now and it was it was it was just perfectly fine I mean it's um it's no more unusual than anything else about (laughs) about Catholics or Orthodox. So, um, you know, I just don't think there needs to be a lot of anxiety about it. And I I don't think there's a single Roman Catholic who thinks that the fish fries are an actual reflection of penance and abstinence. I think it's pretty obvious that they have become an extreme excess. That's pretty insane. Um, And maybe if we return to something like community soup dinners, that might be a bit better. But anyway, that's my- I think so too. Those fish dinners- are so heavy, take a week to digest in and of themselves. I don't know what, where, why they put that forward, but uh, 
in any case, uh, why don't we move on here? Uh, if I'm sure we'll come back to some of these points again. So 21, he who cherishes his stomach and hopes to overcome the spirit of fornication is like one who tries to put out a fire with oil. And so here we begin to see John tying uh, the passions together for us. That without, if, if one thinks that uh, they're going to find strength without humbling the body through fasting and through humbling this appetite for food, if they think that they're going to be able then to struggle with or have the strength to struggle with uh, fornication or lust in any way, then they are deluded. But John says it's basically you're throwing oil on, on fire uh, to, to, to eat in a gluttonous fashion. And, uh, and so it's a very direct comment. But again, I, I think it's something that we, we've moved away from talking about. And, uh, and our, everything in our culture has been so hypersensualized uh, that the, the connection or even the desire to see a connection here is, is lost. And so it's, we really have to speak, I think, to the Christian anthropology psychology that is at work here and that is rooted in the incarnation itself and what has been revealed to us in the person of Christ and, and how that ties in with the spiritual tradition as a whole. I think uh, getting back to some of the things that Brett said, you know, I think it is very difficult uh, with our understanding the, with the understanding that many people have now of what it is to be a human being as it is shaped by the secular culture is very hard to step back from that and hold on uh, to the Christian vision, let alone embrace it in all of its fullness and the disciplines that would surround it. And uh, so something like this might be just dismissed as a kind of prudishness. Uh, if you live in a culture that sees no problem with uh, sort of uh, uh, fulfilling these appetites without any question, uh, then it's, it's going to be very difficult to put forward something like uh, fast, the value of fasting or its tie uh, to the uh, sexual ap appetite as well. And so we have to be able, uh, most importantly by how we live our lives, but also in terms of our understanding of uh, the Christian vision as a whole, uh, we have to be able to articulate, articulate it and articulate it with a kind of clarity. And so to be immersed in the, you know, the psychology and anthropology of the fathers in such a way uh, through reading someone like Climacus or Cassian or the, the, from the Philokalia in order to be able to uh, understand it for ourselves, live it for years and bear witness to it, not only in by, by speaking about it correctly, by, but by people seeing the fruit of it in our day-to-day -day life, the joy, the peace, the humility, the spirit of repentance that it should foster within us. And if all those things are, are lacking, 
you know, anything that we say about any of the Christian disciplines is going to fall on deaf ears. And with all that's happened, you know, within the life of the church in the past decades, you know, I think any moral or spiritual authority there has been lost. And the only way to regain that is through conversion of life, through living it and living it fully and allowing our desire for God to become, you know, unrestrained and to allow ourselves to enter into these disciplines as fully as we can until we begin to taste the fruit of them and until they take root within us. And I think that's what Devogwe's book presented so beautifully uh, from the title of the book on to love fasting that he experienced uh, the, the real fruit of this ascetical discipline and how it had an impact upon his prayer life but also how he viewed the life as a whole and how he struggled with the other passions and that can be no less true for for all of us okay so number 70 or 22 by stinting the stomach the heart is humbled but by pleasing the stomach the mind becomes proud and so there is something about the humbling of of the body the uh restraining one's own desires one's own will uh that then humbles the mind as well and so without humbling the body in this fashion without ordering our will and letting or letting go of self-will in this regard, then we're naturally going to be inclined to pride, to put our will, our judgment uh, above the things of God and what has been revealed to us. So on this fundamental level, if we are not able to let go of our willfulness in the sense of uh, our satisfying our desire for food at every moment, then how is it that we are going to let go of that will in regards to the things that are far more challenging about the Christian life? We're always going to put our, our judgment, or somewhere along the line, we're going to put our judgment above that of God and above that of, of the saints. Keep watch over yourself early in the morning, at midday, and for an hour before taking food, and you will realize the value of fasting. In the morning, thought leaps and runs from one thing to another. With the approach of the sixth hour of the day, it becomes somewhat quieter, and by sunset, it is completely at peace. And so this is what, uh, what Devogwe uh, talked about, but certainly all the fathers uh, talk about this as well, that our struggle in the spiritual life essentially is with our thoughts the multitude of thoughts that we have coming to us, that these are the pri primary ways that we are drawn into sin and that we are tempted or that we are distracted. And so humbling the mind, slowing down the, the thoughts through the physical practice of fasting enables us to be more attentive to what's going on internally as well as to be more attentive to God in our prayer life. And so John says, test yourself. See what experience itself shows you. Watch what takes place throughout the course of the day. In the morning, uh, your thoughts will be 
all over the place, coming at you rapidly, perhaps uncontrollable, but as the fast progress progresses, things will begin to still and to become quiet internally for you. And when we add things like uh, external silence or solitude to this, uh, we begin to experience it in even greater measure. When we step away from those things that add to the distractions or add to the uh, multitude of our, our thoughts, uh, uh, then, then what, what, he, what we experience in fasting uh, is magnified. And so all the, all the, thought, all the disciplines that the, the fathers speak of, we begin to see that, that they are tied together into this consistent and coherent vision of what it is to be a human being, uh, but also one that struggles with sin and how it is that we seek to open ourselves up to the action of God's grace. Number 24, stint your stomach and you will certainly lock your mouth because the tongue is strengthened by an abundance of food. Struggle with all your might against the stomach and restrain it with all sobriety. If you labor a little, the Lord will also soon work with you. So uh, he ties uh, the, the practice of fasting uh, also then to our ability then to control our, our speech that we've talked about and he's talked about. Uh, the sins of speech that we've we've looked at here. We've talked about anger first, but then uh, how that anger is directed towards others, lying, uh, chattering, and uh, being distracted through speech. That this humbling, again, of ourselves on this physical level then also uh, helps to humble the perhaps the, the strongest muscle in the human body, which is the tongue. And, uh, and to keep it from flapping. And, uh, and then I think what he says here is an important thing for us to understand. The little bit of labor, the little effort that we put into this is met by an abundance of God's grace. And so as the moment that God sees uh, the desire arise within the heart for greater intimacy, to struggle with the passions, for greater prayer, or sees a person taking up fasting, then an abundance of grace will be given in order to live it. And we have to understand also that when we begin to do this, we're also going to be attacked uh, with greater fierceness too. That when we take up these disciplines, that the evil one is going to do everything that he can to draw us away from the practice of fasting, knowing what it can lead to in this spiritual life. So we want to trust and seek the grace of God as we enter into uh, the struggle and into the disciplines, uh, but also be aware that we're going to face great opposition and shouldn't be surprised by it or disheartened by it uh, as we, we struggle to take up the discipline with uh, greater depth over the course of time. Any comments? Okay, number 25, leather bottles have greater capacity if they are supple, but if they are, are left in neglect, they do not hold so much. He who burdens his stomach with food 
distends his inside, but he who wars with the stomach contracts it. And when the inside is contracted, then we cannot take much. And for the future, we become fasters naturally. So interesting, uh, uh, wise little insight that is true, that once the body adjusts, uh, there is less of a need than we uh, imagined that we that we had for food. The, the, that are uh, not only will we be able to fast with with greater ease, but there will be less of the hunger pangs that we had when we first started. That our body will adjust, and the stomach, as it were, shrinks in the sense of that, that feeling of need for the abundance of food. And I think on a psychological and emotional level too, things begin to shift for us. The more that we are seeking consolation and strength in our relationship with God, uh, the less that we are going to turn, again, out of habit uh, towards, some, towards something like food to, to fill that, that kind of emptiness within us. Sometimes we eat not because we're hungry, uh, because, but because we're sad or depressed or we're angry. And so we, we are seeking to self-console in, in those moments. And so physiologically, spiritually, and emotionally, we begin uh, to see the fruit of this very quickly within our spiritual life. And uh, in such a way that God then will only strengthen us with his grace. Thirst is often stopped by thirst, but it is difficult to cut off hunger by hunger and even impossible. When the stomach overcomes you, tame it by labors. And if this is impossible owing to weakness, struggle with it by vigil. If the eyes become heavy, take up handiwork. But if sleep is not upon you, do not touch manual labor because it is impossible to occupy the mind with God and mammon, that is both with God and manual labor. So an interesting little paragraph. So, and John is aware that uh, different individuals are going to have different strengths. And there are some things that we might have a more difficult time practicing. And so he tells us not to become discouraged by this, if you are weak in regards to taking up the practice of fasting, then add a, another discipline to it uh, where you're able to strengthen yourself spiritually. So to order the appetite for sleep uh, to, to, or to break your sleep uh, in, in keeping vigil in prayer. Uh, to humble the body in that way. And if your eyes become heavy, then allow yourself to engage in a certain level of work, activity with your hands in order to keep yourself attentive. Uh, but if you're able to be attentive during that vigil, not to turn yourself simply to uh, work for the sake of work, but allow yourself to be drawn into to the prayer that that silence affords and that inner internal peace affords. So do you see what John is saying here? And I think when we uh, talk about, think about training ourselves in the spiritual life, uh, this becomes very important uh, to, to be able to take hold of all the things that uh, the great spiritual writers have put before us, what they learned through experience. 
Uh, vigils is another one uh, that we we don't hear spoken of very often. Uh, or ordering the amount of time that we sleep, disciplining ourselves when we get up in the morning and disciplining ourselves when we go to bed, even in the sense of going to bed at the same time and getting up at the same time in order to order one's uh, sleeping habits, but then to order it to such an extent that we don't give ourselves more than what is needed and that we are able to then uh, fast, as it were, somewhat in order to rise earlier to pray, or, or as they say, to break the prayer or break the sleep uh, for the purpose of prayer. Uh, because again, often at that time, uh, the mind and body is humbled and the thoughts have been stilled. And so to break the night, even for a short period of time for prayer, spiritually is very fruitful. I think our modern sensibilities, you know, shrink back at that. But again, you know, people have no hesitancy about working long hours or staying up to watch movies or play video games and, or burning the candle at both ends. Uh, and if it has a particular purpose uh, in their mind, even if it's entertainment, if it has a certain value for them. But when it comes to the spiritual life, all of a sudden there is this kind of kind of internal resistance that says, oh no, if I practice vigils, I'm not going to be able to do my daily work. Or unless I get eight hours of sleep, I'm, go I'm going to be hurting the next day. But if, you know, there's a late night Sunday football game on or Monday night football game, you know, people will stay up to watch that or hockey here in Pittsburgh is a big one. And people, you know, won't think twice about it. And so we, we have, part of this is, again, reshaping our sensibilities. What is it that we desire? And where does that desire lead us? What are the disciplines that it leads us to take up in order that we might come to know freedom uh, from the passions, but also be, be able to enter into our prayer in, in, a, in a deeper measure? Know that often the devil settles in the belly and does not let the man Man, the man be satisfied, even though he has devoured a whole Egypt and drunk a river now. But after one has taken food, this unclean spirit goes away and sends against us the spirit of fornication, tell him, telling him of our condition and saying, patch, patch hound him. And when the stomach is full, he will not resist much. With a smile, the spirit of fornication comes, and having bound us hand and foot by sleep, does with us all he pleases, defiling soul and body with its impurities, dreams, and omissions. So, a uh, pretty colorful description of what goes on there, but uh, the, the evil one will, uh, as it were, settle in the stomach. So, telling us that even when we've eaten to the point of satiety, that we're still hungry, or that, uh, that we still have a, either a need physically for more food, or uh, that to be truly satisfied, we have to have another piece of dessert, or whatever it might be. And so constantly leading us to, to eat and to fill our belly until we're uh, weighed down. Uh, both with food and drink, and even when we have eaten radically to excess. 
And, and then having weakened us, we'll send another demon. And the, so when we're weighed down, sleepy, uh, unable to be vigilant in our thoughts and in our spiritual disciplines, is when we become vulnerable to the wounds and the uh, that the evil one would afflict upon us. So leading us into sleep uh, or s simply into the acts of impurity themselves because of our excess in one appetite, dreams themselves, uh, you know, in our sleep, that when purity of heart has not been fostered over the course of time, uh, and and where one does not seek to deepen that purity of heart, then things can arise through the unconscious into one's dreams, and then through the memory of one's dreams and the fantasies that emerge there, one can be drawn back to those things over and over again. And uh, then even bodily, he says omissions here, that nocturnal omissions that can emerge again through the excess, that in the rigors of fasting, that often the bodily movements that can take place on a natural level through overeating or overdrinking uh, become less and less frequent. And so... The fathers were willing to look at just about everything that affects us and afflicts us. And, and so here John is, is pretty clear about uh, what overeating and, and drinking does to us and how vulnerable it makes us. Does anybody have any comments about that? Anthony writes, prayer is serious. It takes work. A person can stay up and watch entertainment, but it isn't work but stay up too late and you feel horrible. Maybe it's a counterfeit to work, to make the work of a vigil distasteful. That's right, because you know that there isn't this immediate satisfaction that keeping vigil offers, especially not uh, in the beginning, that keeping vigil, getting up to pray, uh, whether one is praying the Psalms or praying in the Jesus prayer or simply being silent before God, that it's not going to offer the kind of distraction or uh, kind of consolation that entertainment does offer uh, immediately through, uh, you know, watching something on television. It's, it's a virtual reality. And as, as we see in our day, virtual reality is becoming more and more powerful, you know, the we've, we're making the demons work easier and easier all the time because we're finding more and more things, I think, to, to step out of reality. Brett. I've often found that with, especially with Jesus prayer and psalmody, um, mm -hmm. doing these on prayer walks mm -hmm. has been very helpful for me to keep my concentration um, if I just sit in my room or around the house and try to focus on this, I can get re really distracted fast, even in my prayer room um, or icon corner. But walking the Jesus prayer into my steps or listening to the Psalms chanted mm -hmm. um, while I'm walking, somehow I just focus my mind around it better. And I don't know if that's helpful to anyone else, but, and it also gives me good exercise and fresh air. So it's not a, actually a bad thing. Uh, much better than watching TV or putting on another Netflix or something like that, you know? 
Right. Yeah, you know, I think using more and more of ourselves as human beings in, in regards to our prayer uh, can only strengthen and deepen it. And I think this is the reason that we would fast, uh, but also practice things like prostrations too. So what you mentioned with walking, I think uh, we often hear described in the act of prostration, you know, before the Blessed Sacrament or before icons uh, as part of saying the Jesus prayer, that you're involving the whole self in that prayer. And so uh, even while they would be praying throughout the, the day, partly to stay awake, but also I think uh, to keep their mind focused, they would engage in often a kind of manual labor such as the making of mats that they would then, you know, certainly sell, you know, within the marketplace, but it would allow their hands to keep busy and help their mind stay focused. But it was a manual kind of labor that allowed them also to maintain this constant prayerfulness. And so I agree with you. I think as long as that, that walking or that one is doing while one is praying, allows one to maintain that focus upon God and uh, that doesn't distract us. And, uh, you know, there's certain kinds of music that certainly wouldn't be helpful. Uh, I think we all know. So, but yeah, I would agree. All right. Number 28 on page 138. It's amazing to see the bodiless mind defiled and darkened by the body, and likewise the immaterial spirit purified and re refined through clay. So, you know, this amazing to see here, the bodiless mind defiled and darkened by the body. So, uh, what he's speaking of here is... Uh, I think of, of the fall of Satan himself, you know, of, of uh, or we might think also of Adam and Eve. Uh, but I think particularly of the angels that he's speaking of here, that this turning uh, toward away from God, toward the self, can lead to a, de a defiled and darkened mind. And likewise, an immaterial spirit purified and refined through clay that uh, that through our fasting, uh, the we can purify our hearts and our desire for God, uh, and deepen our prayer. And so, you know, what he's trying to do is set up a kind of comparison here for us, and to, to show us just how great the fall can be for us by turning towards the things of this world or away from God, but how uh, also then this setting aside of the self and self-will can lead us back towards him. Brett, did you have an, another comment? Or do you still, did you just still have your hand up? Sorry, I, I forgot to put it down. Okay, David wrote, a priest suggested finding a rock or something to hold in one hand during prayer. I have a rock from a Jesuit retreat house, and it helps to get my mind focused. It becomes a habit when held, when held my mind uh, goes to God. 
goes to God. Yeah, you know, I think, again, it's adding a bodily element. And this is where the, the prayer rope or the chotki emerges. Uh, there are some stories of the monks originally using things like stones or rocks, uh, sort of th throwing them or tossing them into a little pile in order to keep their attention. And then it's only over the course of time th that uh, the, the need and the value of that is seen that things like the chalk keep begin to develop. The rosary and uh, is similar too. You know, it adds this bodily element to the prayer life to help that helps us focus and keep our attention where we want it to be. Uh, St. Philip Neri used to simply tie and untie a knot uh, over and over again, especially while praying during the night. Again, simply to, to have his hands uh, be engaged in this simple task that required no thought, allowed him to stay focused upon God, but also would keep him attentive. So there's nothing magical about it. You know, there's nothing magical about the chalky or the prayer rope. Uh, again, it's, it's part of what it is to be human being you know, of our makeup and making use of our full self uh, to aid us spiritually as much as the evil one will use all of our senses and all of our appetites to draw us towards sin. Okay, number 29. If you have promised Christ to go by the straight and narrow way, Restrain your stomach because by pleasing it and enlarging it, you break your contract. Attend and you will hear him who says, spacious and broad is the way of the belly that leads to the perdition of fornication. And many there are who go in by it because narrow is the gate and straight is the way of fasting that leads to the life of purity and few there be that find it. So obviously, you know, he's, and it's even quoted in the uh, column there, he's, he's quoting from Matthew and uh, for his own purpose here, you know, spacious and broad is the way of the misuse of food that then leads to fornication. Uh, but few and narrow, take the narrow path, which is that of fasting and seeking that of pure purity of heart. And, uh, what is surprising is in the next, uh, I found was in the next uh, saying, the prince of demons is the fallen Lucifer and the prince of the passions is gluttony. So it's curious, the, the prince of the demons is the fallen Lucifer. And so, you know, he becomes the liar, the father of lies. And so the prince of the passions is gluttony that we listen to the lie that our body tells us, eat, eat, you're empty, you need more, you need more. And uh, this then becomes the thing that controls and rules over us. And until we're able to overthrow uh, this prince, as it were, and establish a kind of order there, then we're going to be subject to all, all the other passions. When sitting at table laden with food, remember death and judgment, for even so you will only check the passion slightly. And taking drink, do not cease to bring to mind the vinegar and gall of your Lord. 
And you will certainly either be abstinent or you will sigh and humble your mind. So again, to, to make use of the, these powerful realities of who we are as, as, as human beings, the remembrance of death, our own mortality, the brevity of our life. Uh, if you remember John telling us that, you know, he who remembers it by the hour ceases to sin. So to keep before our minds the clarity of the brevity of our life the, the, that really does recast all of our needs and desires for us, allows us to see them for what they are, becomes important. And he says, even then, uh, it only checks it lightly. And adding to this then the remembrance of our Lord and his passion uh, also can help uh, to either make us or to, abstinent or to humble the body. Uh, but as we go along here, we, we will see that uh, out above and beyond all of our efforts uh, is the grace of God. That uh, with this most basic passion, that we, we have to abandon ourselves to the grace of God. Because uh, no matter how we try to strengthen ourselves in our own will, uh, it is such that it's always going to plague us, and we're only going to be elevated by it, from it by a greater desire, a greater love. And he will say something similar about lust, that, you know, that this earthly fire is put out by a divine fire. The greater our desire for God, then the less our desire for the things of this world or the satisfaction of our appetites couple of comments here, or one from Mitch. On our commitment to Christ, I've often felt like I have spiritual amnesia. I feel at home when I when in the spiritual work, and then I go out into the world, and with its suffering again, forget my true home. I feel like my task each day is to remember the truth. Absolutely. And uh, we've talked so many times here about establishing continuity, consistency uh, in spiritual practice and moving away from the episodic, uh, that uh, the consistency in the practice uh, allows us then also to be mindful of what's going on interiorly and also of the greater realities of our relationship with God. And so our prayer is not to become, be simply a discipline that is done episodically, but that we are to foster it in such a way that we are praying without ceasing throughout the course of the day, that we become prayer, and that with fasting that is done regularly, and we know that the fathers uh, fasted daily for a 24-hour period, so they ate one meal a day and, uh, and that they kept this constant remembrance of death or watchfulness of their thoughts uh, in, uh, in order to keep before their, their minds God. Because it is easy to get caught up in the things of this world or the world's suffering or our own suffering, uh, all the evil that is present within the world and lose sight of the greater realities and then lose our hope. And it's all keeping our focus upon Christ that allows us to hold on to our hope, which then allows us to endure 
uh, to hold on to the promises of Christ and to keep moving toward him in the face of our own poverty and the poverty of this world. And uh, I'm preparing a retreat for the deacons of our, our cheparchy. And this is one of the things that we're talking about, uh, both in terms of our seeking purity of heart and repentance, that we may think that we have repented, but we'll often hold on uh, to certain things within our life, that we act uh, as uh, Joshua did, in the Old Testament, that we don't drive out the Canaanites fully. And so they are allowing their presence within our heart, the things that lead to our passions, without seeking constantly to drive them out, uh, allows them to reemerge again and again in, in different form and perhaps within greater measure. And so there has to be a, a constant, uh, constancy and vigilance uh, with which we are engaging and uh, not only in the spiritual practices, but seeking the fruit of them. And the main one is purity of heart, the fathers tell us, that this allows us to see with a kind of clarity that which comes from God and that which comes from the evil one. And uh, the more episodic things become for us, the, 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 the more difficult the struggle becomes because we keep going back uh, over and over again to these things, as Peter tells us in, in his letter, and as we hear in Proverbs, like a dog returns to its vomit. So we return as human beings to our sin, even though it's something that doesn't make us happy and certainly is something this pretty disgusting, we'll, we'll go back to it over and over again. Uh, Metropolitan Callistus, Sean writes, of blessed memory, said that unceasing prayer is not something that we say from time to time, but rather something that we, we are all the time, even during sleep, right? That uh, this forming of the, the mind and the heart of, of this con through this constant remembrance of God uh, shapes the heart in such a way that there is this constant movement that exists even during sleep. And so the practice of saying the Jesus prayer, for example, can become, can form the mind and the heart so much that even during the course of our sleep, it continues so that when we're drifting off and rising in the morning, it's the first thing on our minds. And I uh, what John will tell us and what, uh, uh, Pope Shenouda, in his book on repentance and purity, says that even our dreams can be purified over the course of time as well by this constancy in our spiritual practices and seeking that purity of heart through things like pre uh, fasting or uh, constant prayer. That brings us to 840. I thought maybe we would finish this step tonight, but uh, evidently not. But that's okay. Again, uh, no rush, because it is so tied to the, the next step, which is on chastity of, or purity of heart. And so we want to make this link between the two as tight as we can before moving on. Okay, so when we stop there, and uh, we'll, we'll pick up next week. All right, uh, as close as always with our Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, 
thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thank you.